Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Hummingbirds, a podcast about composers and what makes them tick. Today, on this very first episode, my guest is Chelsea McBride. My name is Fredrik Hetén, and this is The Hummingbirds. Hi, Chelsea. Hi. <laughs> hey, Fred. Thanks for having me on. Oh, thank you for being here. Uh, please uh, introduce yourself. So my name is Chelsea McBride. Uh, I'm a saxophonist and woodwind person and composer arranger from Canada. Uh, I'm based in Toronto, but I grew up in Vancouver. Um, I guess, uh, I don't know, that's like the basic stuff. I've been playing for, oh gosh, like 15 years now. Um Wow, that's a long time. It's a long time. Uh, I picked up the saxophone because I wanted to be like Lisa Simpson, and I've grown up into being like Lisa Simpson. Oh, <laughs> was that your? Was that was that the reason? That's awesome. It's not the only way. I also wanted to be different, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's an amazing reason, anyway. Um, see, the thing uh, I got this structured, so I kind of wanted to kind of walk through your life uh, to the best of my ability. So I wanted to start with you as a kid, like. Um, in your household as you were growing up. Uh, and I wanted to ask you, like, did you grow up in, like, a musical household? Like, you were, were you surrounded by music, basically? Um, I mean, yes and no. Like, my my f- whole family is full of people who, like, deeply, deeply love music. Um, my dad plays bass uh, just for fun, mostly. My brother plays guitar, although never when anyone can hear him. Um, my mom got me into Bon Jovi and Supertramp and, like... I guess kind of meatloaf and journey. Um, my dad got me into the Doobie Brothers and Earth, Wind and Fire and basically stuff that was cool in the 70s and 80s. So so it was always kind of there. And then they also put me in these like tunes for twos classes. So I was like two or three years old doing group music lessons. Um, and it was sort of just the thing I always did. Um, and And I guess like that comes in in school as well. I know you have a question later about um, elementary music ed and stuff like that. So when I was in school, I started playing piano and doing group stuff at the age of three. And then in elementary school, I picked up recorder when I was like nine-ish, I guess. It was like grade three. Um, Some programs do ukulele now. And then band for me started in grade six. So I was 12 years old, 11 or 12, and I picked up the saxophone. Because uh, I didn't want to play the flute, because that's what all the other girls did. And I didn't want to play the clarinet, because it did, I just didn't want to. <laughs> um, having now learned to play the clarinet, I still don't want to. So. <laughs> uh, oh, no. <laughs> I mean, it's fun. It's just like, you know what I mean? It, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I know. I, I've tried it myself. It's uh, it's not easy coming from a saxophone kind of environment. I don't know why. It doesn't make sense to me for some reason. Yeah, and like, so so I started playing saxophone. I started playing alto, actually. Um, and then in grade eight, uh, my band teacher needed a berry player. And I had no idea what it was. I was just like, oh, new shiny instrument. This will be great. So I was like, I'll play berry. Um, and so picture this, like, you know, five foot two, like, scrawny arm little, you know, chicken shit of a kid trying to like carry the berry from the choir room oh. i couldn't get it off the ground i like vividly remember oh, no. i struggled with it for like 
20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> for 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 those listeners who may not be aware, uh, Chelsea is talking about a baritone saxophone here, and those are quite big. <laughs> it's, and like they're not if you're a grown up, like <laughs> you know. Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> like I was, I was like. But they are if you're a they kid. They are if you're a kid, and uh, I mean, after that, it was fine. After our first meeting, myself and the baritone saxophone, we were we were friends after that, um, and. I like switched to tenor in grade nine and then would eventually come back to Barry when I started in music school in college. But (laughs) I I still remember that that was sort of my my inroad into the world of doubling and into the world of jazz because, you know, I was still playing alto and I was still playing tenor and then Barry would be this thing I would pick up when people needed it. Um, But I played in the marching band and there's no faster way to have to pick up like this like having to like learn how to physically hold the baritone saxophone than to play it for hours in a marching band. Um, oh yeah, totally. Yeah, because it's like not physically demanding work in a lot of ways, but you have to be there for hours, and it's it's mm. still like you know twenty or thirty pounds or whatever. On that's like more than you're supposed to carry when you only weigh one hundred and twenty pounds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I I applaud you for doing that. That's amazing. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know what a, what a baritone saxophone was when I was that age, and if I'd known, I would have been uh, intimidated. Yeah, <laughs> I realized much later how lucky I was because that school had like a jazz band that you could take as a course, and a concert band that had at least some of the wackier instruments. Like I didn't have any French horn playing friends in high school because we didn't have that but we had the baritone saxophone and we had a lot of trombones and I don't think we had a tuba but it wouldn't have been a long shot if we did so there's Mm. there's something to be said for just being exposed to all that kind of stuff um and and my high school band teacher at least for the first bit was so good about getting getting me and other people that were really into music into other things and challenging us. Like he's the reason I picked up clarinet. He's the reason I picked up flute. He's the reason I eventually made the switch to tenor. Like most of my instrumental choices in terms of building my career and defining my career have come from those like early high school band days. Um, And just having like really good memories of, of working with those people and finding a spot for myself that allowed me to be different and also contribute to the greater whole. That's amazing. I love hearing that. Having a role model at that at that age is so so valuable. Yeah. Um there's a in Toronto there's like a pretty solid cohort of people that grew up in Vancouver or in British Columbia like larger scale and got to meet a lot of those educators that I'm talking about and they changed a lot of lives. They started a lot of careers with the students that they taught and I am proudly one of them. <laughs> That's amazing. I'm so happy to hear it. Like not everyone is that lucky, but at the same time, you know, it's luck can only take you that far. Of course, you have to put in the work yeah. as well. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, I'm super happy to hear about that. Um, uh, so I I, uh, I wrote down for the listeners here, I wrote like five pages of questions and sent them to Chelsea beforehand so she would know pretty much what I would ask her. Um, I did write that you started playing the piano very early as well. Yeah, I guess um, that's the thing I didn't say. I did start as a piano player. Um, and I took voice lessons through high school as well. Um, I, Like I said, I've sort of always just been around music. Um, but I did, like, when I was in piano classes, I started doing just, like, you know, the 
the Yamaha school of beginner piano, which eventually kind of takes you into the classical world. And I did a little bit of classical, but I hated it at the time. And so I ended up really, yeah, it did not sit with me. <laughs> could, could you, could you, uh, could you expand on that at all? What did you, what did you not like about it? Uh, I think, I think the thing I didn't like was the other stuff that came with it, like having to play scales and having to practice. Was <laughs> it took me a long time to develop a healthy relationship with practicing. Right. So it, it wasn't the music. It was kind of like the things around that. Even the music to me was kind of boring at that age. Like I grew up on pop, so in country, uh, stuff with hooks and stuff with really like very clear melodies. So the stuff that I liked was they were pieces with clear melodies for mm. the most part. Um, like Furelise and The Entertainer, which I have never been able to play. <laughs> but I could like sing the melody line. And so that made sense to me because that's what I was gravitating towards. Yeah, I can, I can, I can tell you were gravitating toward like jazz and stuff like that very early. So that's, this is super interesting. <laughs> which is funny too, because I didn't know what jazz was until I was like 14 or 15. Really? Um, yeah, I didn't start in jazz until high school. And and for a lot of, I, I wouldn't say a lot of my peers, but for some people that's like early as well. Um, I was, like I said, I was lucky in that jazz band was a course and you only had so many electives in high school and so many courses you could take. And jazz band was way more fun than concert band. Concert band for saxophones is like whole notes, as you, as you know. Oh, yeah. There's nothing, there's like, they're parts, they're not hard, so... The other saxophone players in high school band are like coasting or they're really excited about the saxophone. There's like no in between. Yeah. Because you don't have to do a lot of work there. But I guess for me, like I, I because I started in all the pop stuff and I switched gears sort of in my piano lessons when I was eight or nine. That's what I was playing. I was playing stuff from the 70s. I was playing stuff out of like disco and pop and Motown and um Elton John a little bit and Billy Joel a little bit. Uh, stuff that you would hear on cruise ships, mainly. <laughs> That's an excellent description. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is also, I mean, like a lot of it is great music. Some of it is schlock, but I've had a lot of good influences so that if they're going to pick music from that era, it's interesting stuff. Yeah. And those are the tunes that I gravitate towards anyway. So I didn't get into jazz until I knew that jazz band was a thing and you know, Lisa Simpson plays jazz and like I got into the singers, I got into the Rat Pack and into Ella and into Servan a little bit less so. Um, and from there it was like, well, this is really cool and you can improvise and improvising is cool and different. And I just stuck with it. And it was where I found people that thought like me and just thought this music was really fun. I was gonna ask a little bit about music theory uh because you know comp compos like composition composition and stuff always kind of has to have a base uh, like in, you know you have to have, have some sort of theoretical foundation i suppose so what, what what do you say like how much music theory do you know today and what do you what would you say like where would you say you started learning it i started learning theory oh um, I think I started learning very basic concepts very early on. Like I recall singing solfege as a little kid. Um, I also have perfect pitch, so that and solfege work together um, oh, in a lot I of ways in my writing process. Yeah, it's I I try not to brag about it because like I'm sort of a weak listener in other ways, which we can talk about later. Um, but yes, I ha I don't need a reference pitch to identify a note. 
Um, and that's the easiest way for me to sort of explain it and correlate it. And mm. because of that, notes also have slightly different feelings. So the key of a song is really important to me. Um, and I didn't know that as a kid. I didn't know what to call it. So when it comes to theory, like I remember learning things like major is happy and minor is sad and notes sort of have the sounds of how I learned to sing them. Um, like they feel like they have different vowel sounds almost. And I didn't start doing like real organized theory until I started learning jazz because it's the vehicle to teaching improv as well. Mm. But I had started writing songs well before that and I didn't really understand what chords were or what these songs were but I had figured out certain things and had teachers correct me on certain things so I learned like cadences I learned that five one is a cadence because five always wants to go to one and like four one is a different kind of cadence and it has a different feeling and um, if you go from one to these different places you can get these different chords by using different notes of the scale so it wasn't very academic in that sense um, but we're talking about like I was like 10 to 16 at this point <laughs> yeah so, no no yeah I, I get it uh yeah I, I'm always fascinated by like pe like the way that people learn this differently like you would have come from the world of having perfect pitch and kind of understanding um the theory kind of intuitively I suppose and then you would have learned the theory after that I heard a lot of it and then what happened is I was 15 or 16 and I was going back into voice lessons and singing all this Broadway stuff and in, in BC, you can get high school credits for doing Royal Conservatory exams. So if you did, like, say, the grade 8 RCM uh, voice exam or saxophone exam or piano exam, you get a credit for it, but you also have to do a theory exam. And so when I was in school, I was looking at doing grade 6, 7, 8 practicals and doing at least one of them in voice. And then doing the theory that went along with that. And there were three levels of theory, which they've changed the names of it since I, w I was doing it and since that program. But I took basically up to uh, sort of an advanced rudiments level. So this is uh, before major classical analysis, before major jazz harmony. It's sort of like you get into major modes, but not minor modes. Um, you learn uh, intervals and scales and harmonic relationships within major and minor scales and stuff like that. Um, and so I, I took those exams when I was in high school and then got to, and then I went to Humber College for my music degree. And that's where I did like advanced jazz theory. They teach it as part of the program there. <laughs> all right, all right, all right, cool. Yeah. Excellent. Um, I don't really know how to segue from this, but I guess it's hmm, it's not that far off, I guess, to talk about the competitions that you performed in. I was going to say, I would like to talk about that next because I didn't compete. I'm very competitive, but I also got super nervous as a kid. Um, and I remember that feeling of like, if, if you've ever been anxious or like had a panic attack, it's that feeling where like your entire upper body is just like, like you can't get enough air in and everything tingles and is shaky. It's all really bad. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yeah, I know that feeling. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a very specific kind of panic attack. And that's always how I've experienced anxiety in a certain way. But it makes it really hard to breathe and it makes it really hard to salivate. And if you play saxophone, you know that those are both really important to being a good saxophone player. 
<laughs> or oh, to yeah. like playing the instrument. <laughs> um, <laughs> and and so I remember in high school, like, you know, my first I did like a ballad feature when I was in grade nine. I did a, a couple of like very bad improvised solos because perfect pitch does not immediately get you to be good at any of this. Um, mm. it, and so I, I remember improvising in front of audiences of like my parents and my friend's parents and being super, super nervous. And so there were competitions, but there were mostly they were mostly classical. Um, and I wasn't really in that world. I didn't like the idea of competing. It took until later in high school to get back into classical music as like a very broad genre scope thing. Um, I didn't really get it until I got into jazz and then went back to it from the lens of art music and fundamentals. Like it took me a long time to appreciate that. But I did do these really cool honor bands. Uh, could you expand on that? Because that I don't know what that means really. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, so honor bands or like rep bands might be the other way to put it. Um, they're representatives of a regional, like it's a regional set or it's in the city or it's in the province. Um, so when I was in grade nine, there was this high school jazz band festival that went on for a couple days. And if you were a high school with a band participating in that, you could put a couple names forward uh, for this rep band and they would pick their favorites. And so it's one of those things that's got like 10 saxophones because they want to get all the kids in. And, you know, they're always struggling to find trombone players, but it's all, you know, high school kids getting together for extra rehearsals and extra things to go play in a concert or do some kind of performance. Uh, the BC Music Educators Association does one. I did that when I was in grade 11 and 12. There's one that used to be run by the Vancouver Jazz Fest. I don't know what's going on with that program now, um, but I did that grade 10, 11, 12. Um, I don't think I ever played in that um, sort of Envision Jazz Fest band again. No, maybe I did. Uh, <laughs> it was a long time ago, <laughs> but that was the first one that I did. Um, so I would do these things and they're all very collaborative. It's people that are, you know, on average better than their peers or at the very least filling a spot that needs to be filled. It's people that have an interest in jazz that are probably listening to it a little bit um, and that are learning how to improvise and are really learning how to play as a group. And so they're always standard big band setup with or without a singer. Um, so anywhere from five to 10 saxophones, depending how many people they needed. And that was also an outlet for woodwind players to double. So we would go in and I would play clarinet and flute because, you know, the other guy's going to take a solo or something and we can get more into that later because there's a lot of tales there. But um, yeah, totally. It, but it was a lot of fun and it got me meeting other people. That was sort of my first experience of networking was just going to these things and and meeting new people. And so when I was in grade 12, I did the national band. And that was huge because a few months later, I was going to be starting college. And I actually ended up in the same city as a bunch of people that I had met through that. So even though I didn't know them very well, it was like, oh, I see you on Facebook. And we're going to be starting in the same program in like two months. Like, let's get let's be friends. <laughs> Please help me move across the country. <laughs> like, it's, it's pretty funny. <laughs> Uh, definitely. Uh, yeah, I, I was going to ask what you learned from the from those uh, competitions and what you know how they affected your playing and, and stuff in the future. But I, I guess you've already kind of responded to that. <laughs> and and the other thing is, I got so much better as a player through those because we were playing pro charts, and that that's sort of the other unique thing about having been educated in jazz where I was is that those teachers like they wouldn't pick the hard stuff. But I was playing Maria Schneider songs in high school. I was playing like 
Sammy Nestico charts for the Count Basie band. I was playing weird contemporary free improv stuff. I was playing Ellington music out of the essentially Ellington transcriptions uh, at Jazz at Lincoln Center. So these aren't easy pieces. They're all pro-level charts. And so they would have doubling and they would have solos and they would have really weird chord changes. And no one was ever expecting us to do anything other than their than our best. So we got to be in this environment that was, for the most part, not that competitive. There's always a little bit when you have that many teenagers in a room. Um, mm. And I was not immune to it. But for the most part, it was just a bunch of people getting together and really trying to push themselves to be better and to sound better and to do better. And it was amazing because all the educators were very much on that page. It's you're going to this is your taste of the real world. What are you going to do with it? Um, is this something you like? <laughs> yeah, no, that's very interesting. It's like getting a little taster almost. Mm -hmm. And it's a wider scope than other people got for sure. Um, I I know a lot of people that didn't get exposed to like Anthony Braxton in high school. That's not it's <laughs> not a normal thing in Canada. <laughs> Uh, but I lucked out and I and I got to try some of that stuff. And it, it for the record, it doesn't make any more sense to me now than it did then. But it was still really cool. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So uh, I guess that needs us, uh, leads us kind of neatly into the uh, next uh, question about when you started your first band. Uh, that's actually kind of a tough answer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I had a band in high school, which was just like people that I played with in the jazz band that I liked. And we would do my original tunes or we would play standards together. Uh, when I was in grade 12, I put together an octet. It was a lot of people. I was just starting to get into arranging. I'd done my first big band chart in middle of grade 11, I guess, trying to find something else to do for fun. Uh, and then I started an octet in grade 12 to compete at this festival uh, just to because I didn't have a high school that was going to the local sort of high school big band festival. And so I put together a group and I was like, take us. It'll be fine. <laughs> and so we went and we played and we had a great time and I booked rehearsals there. And then of my projects now, like my trio, my pop six piece, Chelsea in the Cityscape and my big band, the Socialist Night School. Those all started up in college, and those are kind of what I think of as my first real tries, because that was when I had sort of put all the pieces together about how not to be an asshole and how to write music out in a logical way sometimes, <laughs> and and just how to be organized in that way. I've, I've always been an organized person, and I've always been excited to start new things and do new things and I'm generally the kind of person that can follow through on it um, but it took a long time to also just like get out of my own head about it and to feel really confident that oh not only can I start a band and run a band like I can actually do it well and people are going to care that was the big challenge so I guess technically the answer to that question is I was 16 and then I was 19 <laughs> um well we all got to start somewhere, we all started somewhere. So, yeah no that's uh the, the very idea of leading like a group of people and trying to get them to do what you want them to do but at the same time as you said yourself not being an asshole about it that's that's i think I, that's an interesting thing to talk about because a lot of people find themselves in that kind of situation where they kind of have to lead a group and everyone doesn't always get along you know 
And then you have to kind of like, I don't know, you have to learn to work with people and not just see them as assets, which which is something that, you know, I've struggled with. And I'm sure a lot of other people have as well. I think the other thing is that music doesn't sound the same way in your head or on Sibelius or in your works, your DAW, as it does when real people play it. And so you're not going into this project with a unified concept of the pieces. Uh, I was rehearsing a, a piece with the Cityscape a couple weeks ago, maybe more than that now. But I totally had that experience. The tune was like clear as day in my head. But the way I'd written it out and the way I presented it to people, they were hearing it totally differently. And so there's this big like tension in the room. And and now that I've been leading a band for a couple of years, it's like, okay, instead of getting mad at people, because everyone just has a different concept, like it's not about getting mad. It's how do we sit down and make this make sense together? So I sat and I played it at the piano and I sang a little bit. And then that helped. And then we talked about it a bit more and then that helped. It's very problem solvy. <laughs> Did you encounter any hardships on your road toward where you are today? Like this this is such an amazingly stupid question because of course we all did, but I I kind of wanted to just leave this kind of like an open field for you to just fill in any way you you see fit. So, let's let's put this in context. I am a cisgendered heterosexual white-ish ish is going to become apparent in a second woman who grew up in Canada as the child of like third and fourth generation immigrants, settlers, pick your word here. Um, And like, I didn't come from a wealthy family, but I didn't come from like a dirt poor one either. So I grew up essentially white and middle class. And that is very comfortable. (laughs) It also helps that I was just like good in school. Like I'm book smart, pretty quick to pick things up. And this whole thing I talked about earlier about being organized and practical and driven, I grew into that for sure. But I've always had the seeds of that. So in theory, getting to where I am should have been really easy. Uh, (laughs) There's just not a lot there that should have been an issue but yes hardship is a big thing and you have you have mentioned misogyny and sexism and racism and stuff like that and the other thing here is that I am bipolar and I love talking about mental health uh I have experience with like anxiety that gets brought on by manic spells and anger that gets brought on by manic spells I know what mania is like it's it feels really good while you're in it, and it's just terrible for everything else around you. I've been suicidally depressed. Um, and then on top of that, the jazz world everywhere, but even here, is very just – there's a lot of men. <laughs> and some of them are great. Some of them are very positive. Almost all of my educators when I was in school, high school and college – um, and I did a I did a Bachelor of Music at Humber College, so I spent four years in in jazz school for real. Um, almost all of my educators were male, and that never particularly bothered me because they were all, for the most part anyway, focused on teaching me, and they respected what I do and what I'm trying to put the work into, and they saw potential in me. Um, so most of what I've experienced that's problematic has actually come from my peers. Uh, trying to compete with guys that are my age and can play circles around me. Cause I'm also not a technical wizard on the instrument. I like to think that I could, <laughs> and that's always sort of what my writing is gravitated to as well. And maybe that's why I became a writer, but that's sort of the focus for me. 
is more on making a statement and making it in an efficient way as opposed to not (laughs) doing that. Mm. So it's interesting because I think at the end of the day, like there were many, many points from when I started doing these honor bands and these rep bands to like my third or fourth year where if, if, if I had not been as lucky as I have been, like another woman would have quit. Um, whether it's, oh, you don't, we're going to give the solo to the other person because he's, you know, a better technical player. It's like, but I'll sound better. <laughs> like, I'll say something. Or um, I played a lot of second tenor coming up and a lot of Barry. So like these section positions that don't get a lot of solo time. Um, oh, yeah, totally. It was a lot of that. It was a lot of fighting for room to improvise. And then I saw it when I tried to bring music into people would always be like, oh, I guess maybe we'll play it if it's sort of good. And then they'd hear it and they'd be like, oh, I don't know what I was worried about. And I'm sitting there on the other side like, I don't know what you were worried about. <laughs> it's like, I knew this would be at least not a disaster. <laughs> That's not a very high bar. But having having played, you know, you, you we've all been in the room when something's just gone like horribly wrong and it's just kind of awkward. <laughs> you're just trying to get through the end, just trying to get through the end of this piece. Like whether you're in the audience or you're in the band and, and it's like not holding together, but you're all just like, okay, we'll end together and it'll be fine. And you get to the end and you're like, Oh God, let's never do that again. <laughs> <laughs> and I like to think that. Yeah, no, I, I, I recognize that I do. <laughs> yeah. Like for the most part that hasn't happened to me with my stuff. So I've been, I've been lucky in that way and I've worked hard and, and all that. Um, so I, I guess that's kind of it is there's this constant struggle as a woman in the jazz scene still to prove yourself and being a leader and being open about my, my mental health issues and being open about the process puts up a lot more walls in that way too, because as soon as you're honest about things, people can sort of step away from it and be like, I don't want to engage with that. And sometimes that's fine. And sometimes they're just being mildly misogynist jerks like it's hard to tell the difference so I've made it a rule or a process I think I should say to keep leading with that kind of discussion like my writing touches on dating drama it touches on briefly on sexual assault although I've been lucky to have not experienced a ton of it it touches a lot on just general sort of discrimination and misogyny uh, deals a lot with my mental health stuff. And because that's all inherent in my music, you know, it's a lot easier to go to people and say like, well, this is what I have. So take it or leave it. And then when I'm a side person also, it's like, well, if I'm being honest, like this is how I'm doing today. This is how I feel. We don't have to talk about it. But, you know, if you want me to give you an honest answer to this question, this is honestly my answer to the question. And that narrows down my field of who I work with and and who I'm friends with, because that's also a weird intersection um, to sort of balance. But I think ultimately, like, you know, like I've just been stubborn enough to push through a lot of the hardship and to push through people being jerks and to push through people who are like, you don't deserve to be here. Um, cause I have this inherent belief that I do. And the thing that I always tell people, like, you know, whether they're, young women coming up in the jazz scene or they're my like male colleagues who've been stuck on a project for however long. Like, it doesn't really matter who you are. The thing that sticks to us as artists uh, is that feeling of not deserving to be where we are, not deserving to do what we do or not having it be good enough. 
And the problem with being a woman and or being, you know, non-binary and being open about all that stuff is that it gets harder the more layers of systemic, you know, the more labels you start to add to yourself, the trickier it gets. But at the end of the day, you still deserve to be here. And that's always the thing I say. It's like, if you if you believe deeply that you deserve a place, it doesn't actually matter how good your art is. This is why bad art gets to be popular. And maybe you con your way into stardom on a couple of mediocre albums, but you still made it. Like, you still worked for it. Like, the quality of your art kind of solves itself later. (laughs) (laughs) What, fake it till you make it? Yes, fake it till you make it. Thank you. I was literally just about to say that. (laughs) Okay, now talk a bunch about your next question, because I need a very long drink of water. (laughs) Oh, yes. (laughs) I shall just flounder away. Um, No, I um, am... I kind of wanted to stay on that mental health issue a little bit, but at the same time, maybe it'll come up later as well. Um, Because I have this... Maybe hmm. I too have struggled with this, uh, and I know a lot of my uh, friends have. Uh, nearly all of them are creative people in some way, shape, or form. And I kind of had this idea that nearly all of us in any kind of creative field, particularly music, uh, have gone through some sort of depression, anxiety. Um, if you know, if not the more severe kinds of bipolar or you know, uh, stuff like that. So it's interesting to me that you would say that people would kind of shy away from that because, I don't know, I I, I thought that would feel more like, oh, someone else who also has problems. I mean, everyone should be able to relate to that kind of. That's that's what I thought, at least. (laughs) I I think that mental health, especially in the arts, is sort of a gradient. Like, Like, I have bipolar disorder and premenstrual dysphoric disorder, which is like PMS on steroids. Uh, The intersection of those two is that like for unmedicated for like a week, a month, I hate everything and I just want to die. Um, And I'm in pain. (laughs) Like it's 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 really bad. Um, But thankfully, medicated, I don't have these problems. (laughs) And and that sort of thing is just genetic. Like you just kind of you don't get to pick that. Like, my brain doesn't know how to handle serotonin, and then it goes a little haywire when you start adding other stuff in there. Um, But thankfully, they make store-bought serotonin, and so I can just take it at night, and it will fix a good chunk of my problems. Obviously, not all of them. But, But that certainly solves the, like, physical health aspect of it. With stuff like depression and anxiety, like unipolar depression and any sort of anxiety disorder, sometimes it's genetic and sometimes it's not. And... Well, when it is genetic, when they're when you just have serotonin processing issues, it makes sense to medicate. But when you don't, it like that's that's just where you are in your life. And artists are in a pretty stressful space all the time. Like we don't make a lot of money. We work really hard. Our self worth can be unhealthily tied to our creative everything. <laughs> so so it can get tricky for a lot of reasons. And then when you go out and present it to people, it's like ripping your heart out of your chest and putting it on stage for hours. <laughs> and just watching it like, please love me. And not everybody is going to. <laughs> like it's awful in that way. But it's so rewarding when you when you find people that like it and you find people that support what you do. And ultimately that 
creative impulse exists in a lot of other professions and exists with a lot of other people and it should be handled pretty gently because because it is really hard to do and at the end of that all you have to reattach your heart to your body and move on with your life and that's also kind of challenging yeah of course it is (laughs) um I think I think that like at, at least something something that I've found lately I like talking about the struggle because regardless of how you experience grief or depression or anxiety or excitement and mania and all that kind of stuff like there is a part where it is like where you're sick and there's a part of it that is normal Um, that just comes with the creative process and that comes with being an artist and that comes from having a volatile income or a volatile lifestyle and these all get compounded by the substances that are present in the music community um you know i've had to look at my alcohol consumption pretty pretty uh critically over the years and that's because that's the only thing i partake in like i don't smoke pot although you can now in this country (laughs) if you want (laughs) uh so you know it's I, I think that by talking about it, we get this practice and sort of associating it with, is this just a bad day? Or have I had a month of bad days and maybe I should talk to someone about it? Or is it normal to have your entire upper body seize up before you go on stage? Like the answer is no. Is it normal to feel nervous before you go on stage? Happens to me all the time still. Like I don't really get performance anxiety. I used to get it really badly. But as I grew into being more comfortable as a performer, I got less anxious. And it was the same thing about presenting my music. The more that I play my originals out in the world, the less scared I feel of it. It doesn't change that beginning part where I go through like the writing of a new piece. And I'm like, oh, I'm really excited about this. Oh, I'm terrified. This is the worst thing I've ever written. This is the best thing I've ever written. Like, I'm never going to do this again. (laughs) (laughs) I've peaked at 24. Like, (laughs) you know, all of these thoughts happen when I write a new piece. And I write like at least 20 works a year. So it's very mercurial. But the, the core of that, like, the core of that feeling, like, oh, I don't feel like I'm good enough. Oh, I feel like this is the best thing I'll ever do. Like, that it happens all the time. That's totally normal. Um, not being able to ride it out is what is weird. And at that point, it, like, you know, drugs are not the answer for everyone, but they're a big part of it for me. And the only thing that is bigger was the many, many, many years of therapy I did. Um, learning to put words to feelings and to discover, like, oh, I'm angry about this, but really that means I'm angry about this other thing and it could get a little Freudian it's like oh I'm angry that this person ditched me but I'm angry that I was abandoned as a child it's like (laughs) no I mean like yes but but learning how to call things what they are kind of takes away the fear from it and the stigma and the weirdness and I've had people pop up out of nowhere just to be like hey heard you're bipolar can I ask you a question like for a friend uh for a family member like sure If you don't know how to talk about it, find someone who does. (laughs) (laughs) Well, wow. Yeah. uh, That was a long answer and a good one. Uh, And it touched on so many things that I want to keep talking about. But at the same time, this is an interview and I do want to get through the questions, sadly. Uh, I'm going to have to have you uh, come back and talk more about this eventually. (laughs) I I was so excited for this. I was on the phone with my mom yesterday, like total, just like, mom, I miss you. And I'm coming home soon. It's just like, mom, I get get to talk about myself. I'm so excited. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm very glad. I'm so, again, I'm so happy to have you on. Um, 
And I'll be honest, like, that's a new feeling. I, I did not find myself this interesting until, like, a year and change ago. And then I started talking about all the other stuff I do, and I was like, oh, these are all parts of me. Oh, I'm not so bad. <laughs> <laughs> that is an excellent lesson to take away from all of this. <laughs> You're not so like, bad, dude. I'm not that's so bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I want to kind of segue into the... Um, the creative process, I suppose. Uh, the the whole thing where you go, I'm going to write music, uh, and how you go about that. And of course, uh, you already saw me break this down into like several bullet points. We don't have to follow that, follow that exactly, but I do want to kind of start you out on the uh, idea of how do you write music? Like, could you tell me just the process that you go through when you start writing a new Piece. Okay, first of all, I'm really, really glad that you asked me about that, like, pre-first step part, this, like, initial idea, where does the spark come from? Because, like, uh, the short answer is I don't fucking know, but like, <laughs> <laughs> the long, the longer answer is a little bit more complicated, and it's more along the lines of, like, so I've been writing since I was nine or ten, and sort of tying back into the mental health stuff, like, Bipolar, the way that I think of like bipolar and PMDD is just it's an excess of feelings. It's all all of the things that normal people feel, but like on steroids and way too much. Um, and so it makes it hard to process everything. <laughs> like, you know, getting like a B in school. I was I was a good student. So getting like a B was like the world was ending. Um, <laughs> and I and I know totally normal people who also had that feeling in school. My best friend is a perfect example of that. Um, but for me, it was like a big deal. I'd like go home and cry because I got like a 78 or something. <laughs> um, and so writing has always been the easiest way for me to put all of that somewhere and just like deal with it. It's been the easiest way to process it. Um, I don't have a visual sense at all. I draw some really great stick people, and that's pretty much the end of it. So uh, the fact that I understand colors is a miracle. Like, it, <laughs> it's bad. But writing, writing I can do. <laughs> like, words, uh, this is why I'm such a good talker. It's like, words make sense to me. Um, I don't always put them in the right order or use the right ones, but words make more sense. So, So it started as, like, you know, almost like a therapeutic tool, like emotional processing and then I would do the same thing for musical concepts I would write them down so theory in this case like once I started formally doing theory it just like opened up a bunch of doors because things made sense to me um I could see it all on paper and like pick the ideas that I liked and use those and I could record like physically stuff that came into my head so that that's sort of the like beginning of it like the impulse to create and then I write about everything that happened it's very like write what you know like I write about my life and I write about like lame people that I've dated and um you know my last bipolar episode and that weird conversation I had with someone at that venue <laughs> and also like science fiction like I'll you know I, I watched Battlestar Galactica and wrote a piece based off that and I recently did the same thing with a show called The Expanse because I just had so many feelings I love moral science fiction so it's just like I had all these feelings about what was happening it's like uh, this deserves a song this deserves a story 
so so would you would you say that you start out then with with the lyrics uh quite often or? so i i think very melodically more than i think about words um but i'm trying to work on my lyric writing just as something that's part of my craft so i guess i guess the way i think of it is like a melody comes into my head and if it's something that needs words or does well with words then that's sort of the next step they almost happen together uh and you yeah like a lot of it is because it's all sort of coming from my personal experience um a lot of it's very like first and second person it's all i and you <laughs> like i'm like i'm actually telling the story and so it feels like a really natural extension of my voice um i guess as a writer yeah i wrote that down as a question like how you uh what the process is like because you do seem to uh, speak a lot through the through the lyrics as far as i can tell yeah and like i don't keep a diary or anything like i'm i i've tried many times but it just doesn't really stick with me so the songs kind of take that place like i still do something that passes for journaling but i'm not dedicated to keeping like a daily record of everything i've done that's never attracted that's never really been that compelling of an idea um, so it's more, it's more like emotional processing. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, once you have like that initial idea and that, that phrase, that kind of like motif, what, whatever, you know, what, what you start with, uh, how do you move on from there? Do you kind of like start thinking about what kind of instrumentation you want to do or the tempo or the time signature or anything like that? Um, I mean, some of that's kind of a package deal. Like, I really do think of my my melodies and and lyrics as working together in that way. Like, they usually it usually happens at a certain speed or happens with a certain feel behind it. My my brain has a lot of details filled in usually by the time I'm writing down an idea, and from there, from there, I'm just trying to like expand on it and I've definitely had ideas that come to my like end up in my notebooks that are this has to be for cityscape or this has to be for socialist or this other thing but sometimes sometimes they're not so assigned and then when I have pieces to work on that have specific aims like I did a commission for a high school in uh, Massachusetts last year I work with a new music presenter and write like uh, sort of arty chamber classical stuff with those, usually it's, I, I like start with the instrumentation and and see what sits with that. It's still, it's still all pretty like melody driven at the end of the day, but the melody usually has like things attached to it, <laughs> like a tempo. <laughs> uh, yeah. And it kind of implies the chords and, and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, I write well, pretty I tonally, um, which I don't necessarily think is normal for like an art music composer these days, but I guess because I grew up around radio and stuff that could be played on the radio, like yeah, I I'm very attached to keys and key centers and like major ish harmony. <laughs> so so that that's a place that I feel really comfortable. So yeah, I see a melody and um and and have a sense of what's going to go on harmonically. Uh, sort of circling back to talking about theory and stuff like that one of the very few things that I remember from my first year college theory course was talking about chord substitutions like function substitutions and that broke my whole world open like 
I, I didn't I didn't have like an aha moment going into music like it's because it's always been sort of around and I didn't have like an aha moment for jazz it all just felt very obvious so like the only one of the few things that I can point to is just being like this is life-changing especially from an educational perspective was learning that you could substitute certain chords in certain ways um and like jazz school people know but like tritone substitutions like you know, playing stuff for D flat seven over a G seven or vice versa. But for me, it was like, oh, I could put F major here, but I could put D minor or I could put, you know, B flat major nine, maybe if that's what it calls for. Um, learning that I could do that. I, I would sit in front of my books for days, just like, oh, how many different ways can I harmonize this, this melody? <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. And I don't have a wide concept of it. It was just, it was the coolest thing. I'm like writing pop tunes. It's like, how many different weird chords could I sneak into this? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome. Um, no, I, I really love hearing about that. Um, like since, uh, since you were kind of, I, I guess you kind of, mm. Your, your aim is different because you, you write tonally and you're a jazz musician and that's an interesting combination, I suppose. Yeah, jazz jazz and tonality is sort of an interesting relationship. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> <laughs> None of us really get it. <laughs> no. Well, I guess that's fine. Uh, <laughs> uh, so when you write something, well, you said that you write something and you kind of feel like, oh, this is for Socialist Night School or this is for the, the Cityscape. Do the other band members that you write for do you, do they sometimes have any input on the compositional process or is it always does it always start with you? I'd say as a rule no. Um but they shape a lot of the final sound. Um so the songs come in especially with socialists the songs come in pretty fully formed but I like to think that I run a very benevolent dictatorship with all my bands. Um, which is to say that if my drummer is like, you wrote this, but I think you mean this, the answer is usually yes. <laughs> and especially like, you know, in Socialist, I've had the same bassist and drummer for almost seven years now. Cityscape is, I've had sort of two core groups of people, but they've all been together for a couple of years in their own way. And so that's Cityscape, especially like I would bring in these little sketches of things that had started as me and piano. Um, and then the band would be like, well, I think you mean this. I think you want to add this. I think this is part of what you're doing. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I guess that comes with knowing them for a long time as well. Like, they know what you're trying to express. Yeah, like, I'm always down to work with new people. Uh, I think it's I think it's something that I'm really bad at doing on my own. And so I welcome the opportunity to collaborate wherever possible. But also, like... There is something to be said for having people in your bands that will just read each other's minds. And as a leader, I like that a lot more than I like working with new people all the time. <laughs> yeah, I, I can imagine. Yeah, new people are great. But what I what I want is to bring something in and be like, I don't know what this is and have like a look exchanged between my rhythm section and then have them solve my problem. Like, because that happens. Not yeah. quite so drastically but i've been in situations where i've been like i don't know what this is and then they look at each other and they're like oh i mean this and they're like yes that let's play that and then it magically all just settles and it's just like i don't know how i don't understand any of the things that just happened there but my song is so much better <laughs> well i mean if it works in that direction that's that's the good you know that's what you want yeah even, even <laughs> honestly i've had a few i've had that happen a few times where it's been really bad but it's never been like 
artistically like creatively bad it's just not been what i wanted mm. um and so like we'll go and we'll do it and i'll be like guys it's hilarious and please never do that again <laughs> 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 so uh once the, the the whole thing is done kind of how do you or maybe you have like a title in mind for it because t track titles always fascinate me like how you come up with them so oh God, they're so stupid <laughs> like <laughs> you have to call your song something like you need to know what what you're telling but like i, I don't know some of them i have a penchant for like very melodramatic titles or very short titles um and so that's where some of that comes from. But also, like, I, sometimes I start a piece and I know what it's going to be called. And then the story comes out from the title. Um, yeah, sometimes I'm looking I, at some of them now. And, like, like Arrival of, of the Pegasus is just beautiful. So that actually, that's a good one. Um, Arrival of the Pegasus is uh, Battlestar Galactica Season 3, Episode 4. And if there are any BSG fans listening, I'm talking new BSG. I'm not that old. Um, <laughs> like, I that's the Pegasus has this has this nice little arc from like very late in season two to like season three, episode four. And whenever I say that to people, they always immediately have this image of of the Pegasus arc, and it's like, you know, it's kind of this totalitarian military rule ship and. You know, they end up fighting with the crew and the ship ends up getting destroyed in what has got to be the most ridiculous Deus Ex Machina moment in that show. Um, and it's just meant to be that journey of like, you know, once allies and then not still kind of like not friends. And then, uh, you know, the ship shows up out of nowhere to save the day when the resistance, it's all... <laughs> <laughs> whole thing and also with that one i was really proud that i basically just stole the sixth theme <laughs> from that show which is like the most recognizable cue and bear mccurry is a genius and and that was part of it is like you know there's this very specific musical idea so i like took it and like barely altered it and made it into a whole piece and it it's it just comes from like being inspired by someone else's work well i mean I, that that's you know you create by you know taking in what you hear and making it your own so yeah and so on the on the topic of titles too i guess uh one of the songs on the cityscape album is called boundaries and that one was an interesting one because the word boundaries is not contained within the song at all so that's not that weird for a pop song but it's definitely not normal either and I was sitting there with all these lyrics in front of me, just like, what do I do with this? Like, what is the thing that sums up what this song is about? And for me, it was it was exactly that. It was this encounter with a person, um, with a guy, I wasn't even dating him. So, you know, one for the books. But it, we had just like, we clicked really well. And I had said a couple things like, hey, I don't want to talk about this, or I don't want to do this, or like, you know, I have a boyfriend. <laughs> and he just like did not regard any of that. And so that's all it was. It was literally just a song about having my boundaries crossed and being pretty pissed off about it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I could tell. Uh, that was actually a question I was going to ask you later on. Uh, but, you know, now is it at as good a time as any, I guess, uh, because these kind of heavy themes kind of struck uh, struck out at me like this this is very clearly a song about sexual harassment and uh yeah which is funny because like it is it is about that that's the experience that like that's the name for that experience um but that 
also is complicated because it was like with someone in the scene so on top of that you have this whole professional layer of interactions like god am i gonna have to see you again like oh and you were so creepy and weird and like how is that okay at all (laughs) so like i i write about the heavy stuff like i like not writing about the heavy stuff i like writing songs that are just about like you know i can't believe i was about to say this but like the meaning of life and other you know less scary topics than you know how do you deal with working with someone in the scene and especially like i was 22 when that happened and when i wrote that tune like i don't plan on going anywhere for 70 years so (laughs) i'm gonna have to deal with this person until one of us dies and that's kind of a problem like you know if i was older and living in a different place it would be totally different but there's this whole other layer of like we're both starting out our careers and you were like a massive jerk and everyone needs to know and like i'm not a name and shame person but it's very very clear to my friends who that song is about um and so in dealing with stuff like that a lot of it was just processing the whole reality of like i might have to go and just like man up and deal with this for 70 more years and like that's a long time and totally unfair to me well of course i mean <laughs> yeah, that goes without like, saying <laughs> i don't want to do this but i'm i'm faced with this either like you know name and shame and all you know and get super angry and sabotage this person's life but like you know i i like to think that i'm a believer in things like rehabilitation and you know just generally teaching people to not be jerks um and that was sort of the path that I was trying to take, but I also had to deal with all the bad feelings that had happened. Um, and that that's where that song came from, but that's where a lot of the other stuff that I write comes from. Like I've gone through a couple bad breakups and those have both provided a lot of material. <laughs> um, I like uh, one of the songs in the Cityscape album is called Paint in Gold. That's about the first time I was in New York City and was just like overwhelmed by everything. That was one um, of my favorites, by the way. Uh, I really <laughs> like that track. It's actually one of my favorites. And that also features a piece of blatant thievery. If anyone's listened to Happy Christmas War is Over, that's totally what happens in the last course. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I proudly steal, uh, not because I'm down to just like jack other people's works and call them my own, but like it's it's funny (laughs) it's like really entertaining uh to just like and and to explain it to to my band members it's a lot easier when you have a reference so like i brought that tune in and they're like cool ballad in 12 8 i was like happy christmas war is over and like played a little bit of it they're like oh (laughs) light bulbs in the room like uh we have a couple pieces uh that i haven't been recorded yet uh, that I'm really excited about. And it's the journey through a, a manic phase and a depressive spell. Mm. Uh, that's with the the big band. And I'm really excited about that, partly because I, I just like what I did musically. Like, I feel really good about my orchestration on it. I feel really good about, like, the technical side of it. Um, but I'm also really proud of the band because every time we talk about that piece and every time I sort of dig into the baggage of my mental health they're really receptive to it first of all and then it makes sense to them like you know we were rehearsing yesterday and i was like okay so these seven bars can be like sensory overload and then in the depressive part we did a bit of it just like vocals and piano and i was like okay that feeling 
that like feeling in the air that happened where it was like um it's sort of like a video game where you're like standing under an ice platform and everything is just frozen and you've hit pause and it's the 90s so there's no pause menu the picture just freezes (laughs) it was like it was like that but so much better than anything that came out of dkc like (laughs) it was like that feeling and i'm like okay we're doing it again do not lose that feeling and then every time uh, fighting words for a lot of our listeners i'm sure (laughs) i know for uh, for the record i adore donkey kong country (laughs) yeah well who doesn't really David Wise is a genius. David and, uh, Wise is a genius. Yeah. The game is really good. I hate the ice levels, but it's only because you can't save in the first half. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a very good gamer. <laughs> uh, no, I don't have fond memories of those either. I mean, I love DKC, but I'm not very good at the game. So that's, but you know, the music is amazing. <laughs> yeah, totally. That's, and I mean, that's but, um, how it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I uh, I want to kind of just ask briefly about um, the idea of the concept album as a, you know, as a, <clears throat> well, as a concept, as it were, uh, like The Twilight Fall, for instance, which is a name that I adore, by the way, <laughs> I love that name. Um, like, like, you're all like, to me, at least, uh, it seems like the albums that you've released so far kind of tell some sort of a cohesive story, or they kind of paint kind of like a bigger picture. And I kind of wanted to know if you kind of have that in mind as you write the music. Like, oh, this... Well, I guess we touched upon that before. Like, this should go, f- you know, with this setting or not. But, you know, do, do you kind of have the whole idea of the album in your head? Or does it come together as you write? Like, no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> short answer. <laughs> uh, no. I'm sorry uh, <laughs> if that was a very complicated question. <laughs> That was not that was, no that was a great question. Um I I have I feel pretty strongly about my music. Like it is very tonal, but it's also very programmatic. Like I do tend to tell a story or at least be sort of contemplating a theme. Um with something like it's actually good that we're talking about like my most recent full lengths and I have some tidbits for you as we begin to prep for my next big band record but like the the pop album came first what i do came first and that was sort of um the theme of the band is like millennials in the big city but the theme of that album is really just me dealing with my breakup um i i just like just gotten out of school and you know left this relationship that was really toxic for both of us um and had all these songs that dealt with moments in the relationship moments outside of it um just like snapshots from a time in my life and so that's really how that came together it wasn't necessarily written to be a concept it was just kind of like these all relate to the same theme and have a unified sound and tell a certain story and then with the twilight fall the theme also kind of came later it showed up in in the production process we're like oh this is this is a life story like this isn't just it had started as commuter dreams. It had started as like you fall asleep on on the train and you wake up at the end of the album. <laughs> That's really what it was. And it, so it all came from track two, which is called Intransitory. And then what it turned into was like Ambleside and Intransitory are this kind of prologue and they set the scene and you're on this weird other planet that has purple skies and orange clouds. And then it starts at the twilight fall. And the Twilight Fall is six-year-old you discovers a haunted carnival and what the fuck is going on now? <laughs> like, and then it, you know, 
does the montage of you growing up until you're old and surrounded by your favorite people uh, for something simple, which is also just like the band's theme song at this point. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't, I don't go into the writing with that. Usually it just sort of pieces itself together. It's like I put songs in certain order and in a certain order, and then they, they start to clarify themselves to me. Um, with the next one, the next record that the big band is making, which is sort of the next thing on my plate for this year, uh, that's totally how it happened. I got I got into this self-directed residency up at the Banff Center. Uh, if you are a creative at all and you don't know about the Banff Center, go look it up. It is the best place on earth. Um, and I, I got to spend three weeks up there just writing. And what ended up happening is I had, again, this overarching thing. It's like, I want to write about conflict. Like, I am conflicted as a person. The world is conflicted. This was right before Trump got elected. <laughs> um, so so it was a it was an interesting time <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, I guess you could call it. Yeah, that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe not right before it, but it was sort of in that I'm like trying to piece together what it was. But like things were weird. Uh, the Me Too happened. The first Me Too story broke while I was in Banff writing this. Um, and so it. It's a bunch of pieces that deal with conflict, like the uh, bipolar two-piece thing that's in there. Um, I wrote a piece about the Me Too movement. I wrote about uh, war as seen in the television show The Expanse. I wrote about uh, U.S. political angst. Um, I wrote about, like, what else is on this album? Uh, Dealing with death. Uh, Dealing with... There's a track that I'm missing. Oh, dealing with morality. That's another one that I'm really excited about. That's really hard to play. Uh, <laughs> and and then it ends with uh, a song that I've been excited about since I wrote it, which is the moment between Will You Marry Me and the answer to the question. Uh, that's our closer. I'm so excited to do this. <laughs> um. Oh dear, the segue here is not very good, but I kind of wanted, well, I guess, hmm, I kind of wanted to go into the process of arranging music. Uh, now, before I, uh, when I wrote these questions, uh, I didn't know what I know now, which is that you amicably left the Koopa Troop uh, quite recently, I guess. Like last week, kind of, like you wouldn't have known. <laughs> no, right, yeah. Uh, so this doesn't apply to that specifically. I wanted to kind of like get you off on a tan- tangent of like, you know, what, what made you start uh, a video game music theme group to begin with and kind of like how do you s- decide what tracks you want to arrange. But then you tell me that you kind of have something new in the works. So uh... um, to say that I have something kind of new in the works would be a generous description. <laughs> 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 that would involve me actually having worked on something. <laughs> no. Um, so, so I played with the Koopa Troop for four years. Um, they're all guys that I went to school with. We were all at Humber together. Uh, I adore them. They're they're lovely people. Um, and we bonded over playing Mario Kart 64 after our improv classes and then looked around the room and we're like, oh, we'd make a pretty good band. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, a magical thing was born. And that was really good for me because, like, I played a ton of video games as a kid. I kind of put it aside when I went to college because you don't have time for stuff like that. And I hadn't downloaded Steam yet, which is, you know, great great for being able to do my schoolwork and bad for, like, every other part of my life. So 
So it was also a really nice way for me to rediscover my relationship with video games, uh, which I do love and wish I had more time to play. Um, I The music in those games is the kind of stuff that I like gravitate towards. It's melody driven. It's generally pretty tonal, but not always. And it's it's just interesting. It does not slack on advanced musical concepts. Like you have to be sort of good at your instrument to pull this off. Um, and so the challenge that was inherent in playing some of this stuff was really exciting for me, especially just having come out of grad school or sorry, not grad school, uh, just having come out of college and like trying to make sense of advanced improv and just velocity on my instrument. Um, so that that was the big thing is it was a chance to dress up and be nerdy like I don't you know who gets to be a princess in their spare time (laughs) (laughs) I guess that should have started with who has spare time (laughs) (laughs) yeah no that is uh, an increasingly um, disappearing commodity these days I guess Um, well, cool. Uh, I guess that wasn't as big of a topic as I thought, maybe, (laughs) unless you wanted to add something else. No, I just, I I guess the other thing with that is like, I, I've been, uh, scaling back or reshaping a lot of the work I do lately. When I came out of school, it was a lot of performance stuff. It was a lot of gigs for not a lot of money. Um, now that I'm sort of a person with a reputation, I get to play gigs that pay a little more. Um, and because I'm just, we're talking at a very transitional time for me, and I think that's good um, in my personal life, in my professional life. And the thing that I was going to say is that uh, now that I've left this video game band, I've realized I really want to do something in that world. Like, I want to have an outlet that at least puts me closer to video game music. And because I'm transitioning in other parts of my career, I've been looking at, um, I've been looking at grad school. Uh, hence the Freudian slip. <laughs> and I've been looking at um, ways to network in the video game music community and ways to network online because as much as I, I've always been really good at sort of getting out and knowing people and I've never been very good at making something out of that. Because um, it's no good if people know you and they don't hire you. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> so like there's another video game band in town that I have been talking to and it was very much just like if you need a third person in or a third saxophone then like let's talk and that is probably never going to materialize and then I'll be fine and now what I'm starting to think about is like okay do I go to MAGFest next year just to hang like a can I afford it because I have no money mm-hmm. um, I'm trying to do a big band record and those things cost a lot more than I make in a year <laughs> and like if I don't want to go to, if I can't go to MAGFest then what do I want to do with the rest of my life <laughs> <laughs> Right. If I if I go to grad school, will that help? If I go to do an online course, will that help? Like if I, you know, I'm starting to ask myself all these questions again. I have none of the answers. I have like a couple of plans, but I'm like researching all of them now. (laughs) Well, I guess that makes for a pretty good segue into the next little section here, which is um, when inspiration fails. (laughs) Like, uh, what happens when you hit a wall, like with, with writing, with arranging with, you know, like when you don't like, let's, let's start out with writer's block, for instance, like, does that happen to you? (laughs) Um, I love your solutions to this. Also, do you, do do you take a walk? Do you work out? Do you eat something tasty? Like, yes, food is usually good for you. (laughs) Um, I do all those things. Uh, I, I guess like, I, I'm a big believer in no zero days. 
So like sometimes I'll write like a couple bars and just be like, all right, that's my inspiration for the day. I'm done. Um, and I was working on a piece recently where I hit, I hit many walls. It was an eight to 10 minute piece. I knew what my instrumentation was and I just kept writing and I was like, this is mostly bull. (laughs) like this is not my best work ever i'm not sold on this melody i think this is really cheesy even for me and i love cheesy like (laughs) you know and so i would i would put it down sometimes not literally and just like shout the window or i i spent a lot of time my parents place and like my brother is still there so it'd be like i'm gonna go grocery shopping or i'm gonna go get bubble tea do you want to come with it's like yes i don't need bubble tea and i don't have six dollars but i'm totally coming with you because this might help (laughs) Hmm. um and and so i like when i was at banff i had the luxury of being able to sit there for 20 minutes until my brain got out of its whatever um so i would say like you know, I'd hit a wall and it'd be like five o'clock and be like, okay, well, I don't want to go down for dinner yet because I'm going to work until later. So I'm going to sit here with my computer and the mountains outside my window and, you know, the elk walking across the grounds. And I'm going to sit here until 530. And if nothing happens, then I go get food. And usually something would happen. Like, you know, if you sit there and you stare at the same thing for like 10 minutes, then colors start to like appear in front of your face. And, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> like inspiration sometimes hit or, or, or sometimes you hallucinate or whatever. Like <laughs> you figure it out. And if I can't do that, because, you know, writing when I'm in Toronto, for example, like I don't have the time for that. I can't sit here and wait until a problem solves itself. So then, yeah, it's like, what else do I need to do before I leave the house today? Oh, I'll go like I'll go do my yoga now. Or I'll make food because I haven't eaten yet. Or like, oh, I forgot to empty the dishwasher, which is like, I have a dishwasher. (laughs) It creates so many more chores, Mm. but it also does all my dishes. (laughs) So like, you know, anything to just like change up the scenery. And if I'm finishing one of those tasks and I'm still stuck, but I'm feeling like good about my work ethic, then sometimes I'll put things together. It's like, oh, I went down to take out laundry, but I also haven't eaten. And then I'll start stringing things together. And then I don't come back up for another hour, but I feel better because I've done things. And then it's like, okay, now I'm ready to look at this melody again. (laughs) Yeah. uh, What about like stuff like imposter syndrome? Because that's the thing that we kind of touched upon earlier. I, I think everyone deals with it i totally do the i saw something on facebook or somewhere the other day that was like process of writing a thing and it's like i'm really excited i don't get it this is the worst thing i've ever written i'm so excited <laughs> it was like that was the general process of it and mm. tied into that is a lot of like uh oh this is weird oh this isn't great oh, i'm really bad at this oh, i'm really bad at everything oh i'm really bad at everything <laughs> like like at, at at that point, do you kind of like give yourself a break, you know, again, like just doing something else and waiting until it passes? Or do you have some sort of technique to to deal with it? Honestly, what I've put more work into is actually trying to get my self-worth out of my creative process. Because like creativity embraces failure. Like you, you will write something bad. Um, you will play something not excellent. But as an improviser or as a performer, you're told like, doesn't matter. Just like keep the show going. I can't count how many solos I've played on wedding gigs where I've like gone for something and failed at the thing that I was trying to do and then like salvaged it because what else do you do? And I, I think of writing the same way. If you if you write and everything you write is 
bad or you like fail at the thing you're trying to do and then you just quit you've you've lost something important like I know that when I go on stage I can put on a show even if I'm not playing any of the right notes and so I think of writing much the same it's like I want to just do that because that process is something that I enjoy and that means letting myself have the space to fail and write something not so great um because the next thing will probably be better and it usually is and then aside from that like I'm also a a person that like this is my work and my passion granted and my calling and my whatever but it's it doesn't determine how valuable I am as like a human being (laughs) speaking of um of that, I guess it's very natural then to kind of move on to um, to criticism, uh, which is something that all artists have to kind of, I don't know, deal with. <laughs> I I avoid it like the plague. <laughs> <laughs> no, I kind of wanted to go in on the, uh, go into that. Like uh, you're you're very active on on like social media, so I assume and and stuff like that. So you'll you'll get criticism thrown at you you know, regardless of whether whether or not you're ready to deal with it, kind of. So I kind of want to um, talk to you a bit about, like, how you deal with, with stuff like that. Have you, have, have you had anything, like, really bad written about you or something like um, that? When, when I did the last album, when uh, we submitted to, I don't even know how many publications. I saw the list, but I don't remember it. Um, and there's, like, one writer who was like, oh, her orchestrations are really cool, but her lyrics are, are like, pretty eh, and they need a lot of work. Um, I showed my work to, like, a songwriter at Banff, and he was like, your orchestration's really good, and your lyrics are getting there. <laughs> he was nicer about it. Um, and, you know, I read a review that was like, oh, like, this is all, it, it's, it's, like, all right, I guess. And my personal favorite was the one uh, this guy reviewed, like, two... Uh, female fronted albums one of them being mine and was like the glass ceiling is broken (laughs) (laughs) and for the most part like for the most part I try and ignore it to be totally honest like I am way too delicate a little flower to be able to read that day in day out I don't want to I I feel good about the stuff I do I get really excited about it by the time we're putting it out to market if I'm not excited about it it's not good Um, and I think that you're not going to please everyone it's just not what we're here to do in this business. I got way more great reviews than I got bad ones. And even the stuff like, oh, my lyrics need work. Like, yeah, that's now a thing I've been working on for the past two years um, and will continue to work on because I know I, I want to shore up skills in that area and be able to set text to music and be able to write words that make sense. So I, I think there's something to be gained from criticism if you've got a thick enough skin to look at it and take everything with a grain of salt but like if I was just gonna listen to what everyone told me about myself I'd be really depressed all the time (laughs) like really clinically depressed all the time and I don't want to do that so if I don't have to read the comments (laughs) I don't (laughs) I don't like I'm a I'm a one-woman show when it comes to that stuff I run my own social media I sometimes check my youtube but if i don't have to read whether other people say about me i'm not going to i I was just gonna ask like if you have any kind of if you have any uh, like a friend or someone you've hired to like do things like that but i guess i guess not since you're a one person show 
um, you have to kind of deal with all of that yourself. So do, how do you deal with fan interaction? Like, do people write to you and do you respond or? Um, I have like a couple things set up online so that it doesn't look like you're talking directly to me, but it's it all goes to me. Uh, there's not so much that I can't handle it because I'm like not a big deal. Um, it, slash not that many people want to talk to me. Um, and as a general rule, I'm just like trying to put myself out there and promote myself and do my own thing. And then on top of that, like keep in touch with my friends and stuff like that. Like I'm on socials for the purpose of being social, which is a marketing tool and to like hang with my friends and to let my parents know I'm alive. Cause I do live like, you know, across a continent from my folks. <laughs> so no one really worries, but I, I always worry that if I don't post like every so often, then they'll get worried. <laughs> <laughs> So, right. Uh, that's, that's part of it. Yeah. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going to ask about, like, um, you know, that, that if you felt drained of energy after you've had to deal with really troublesome fans. But since you kind of wisely, I think, kind of choose not to deal with that side, uh, I guess that's not really an issue for you. Yeah. I mean, like, of course, of course, I'll get drained if there's like a, a bad interaction. And that happens professionally as well, like among you know, people that I work with, but I I try and keep that to a minimum because my mental health makes that a pretty precarious thing to begin with. Like I have a capacity for dealing with drama and stressful people and all that, but it's a lot lower than most people's just because the whole picture is so weird. So I, I always just like to think of it as I, I handle myself with kid gloves. Other people can be other people, but like, I'm, I'm not going to read the comments. <laughs> I'm not going to, you know, engage in a fight that I don't have to. Um, yeah, I, I think that's just like, that's how I do it, really. I, uh, I'm not going to prod any further. <laughs> uh, cool. Um, I, hmm, this, there's not really a good segue to this either. Uh, but we've kind of like reached, um, the end of my script of the personal stuff. And now I kind of just want to have, I had some technical questions that I think are interesting, uh, mainly like you know, related to how your music is recorded. Uh, like, do you record together in a studio? I mean, you do. I've, I, I've read online that you do, but could you tell you tell us a little bit more about that process maybe? Um, yeah, so so of the, the last two albums that I did, which are the two full lengths, um, I feel really strongly about my music being done as live on the floor as possible. Um, I think the interaction between people is really important. Um, there's a lot of improv in my music or actually that's not true. There's not a lot of improv, but it's very important when it's there. So I want that interactiveness and I want people to really be thinking about that kind of stuff. Um, so for the socialist record for the twilight fall, we did everybody live off the floor, but a couple people isolated. Um, and that's 19 people. <laughs> so there's not a lot of room for error. Everything needs to be very tight and very accurate and very well rehearsed and um, and then it's just like, yeah, you just go, you just play all of the stuff together. There's not a lot of room to like edit or overdub. That record doesn't really have overdubs at all. Um, I think there's a couple things, but nothing like major. And, and we all just like play together and that's the spirit of the music. Whereas for what I do, we did part of it off the floor. All the rhythm section stuff is together. Um, and then we added vocals, we added horns uh, after the fact. But I think the core of it, like that soloing thing, is really important to get with everyone together. Um, and big bands traditionally are done 
like if you go way way back it was like two mics <laughs> in a room with everyone <laughs> like now now it's like 46 mics and a couple of walls between people but the the philosophy hasn't changed <laughs> so um what what like the vibe between the musicians while you record can you kind of like delve into that a little bit because that's fascinating to me it's like the weirdest family reunion <laughs> <laughs> i mean i'm lucky like like i work with really cool people who generally also like each other um and so you know we like we hang out it's fun it's a good time uh, when we're down to business we're down to business um and I, I pride myself on being able to do that, being able to like sort of stand up there and be like, I love you and I value you deeply. And we're doing that again because someone didn't play that right at Measure 51. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I with the uh, with the pop stuff, I did it all sort of myself and my engineer co-produced and helped out there. Um, but with the big band, I also have someone in the booth, uh, it, which for the past few records for all of our records has been the inimitable Kevin Stoltz uh who has been in the control room just to be like uh I love you and I value you and we're doing it again because <laughs> I'm out there trying to keep the ship going so I'm conducting and I'm sometimes playing and I'm usually freaking out when we're in the studio because there's just so many moving parts and so Kevin's job is to make sure that I don't crack and then my job is to make sure everything sounds good and really, it's kind of like my job is to not crack and Kevin's job is to make everyone sound good. <laughs> it's it's super handy. But but that's that's the honest truth is like generally everyone's friendly and hanging out and I do my best to like make sure everyone makes a little money and gets fed and that it's generally a good time in other ways. And I try and make sure that if I don't have someone like Kevin to offload to, like if I don't have a producer, then I have someone there whose job it is to like keep me in check because like i said the mental health thing is super volatile like i'm i'm a big girl i'm totally capable of taking care of myself but it's also nice to have someone else look and be like yo you need to leave the room for like five minutes and just like get your thing together because i will work for hours and then freak out and get into a whole spell about it and having someone who in the room who just has the permission to be like you're being a dumbass leave <laughs> is really valuable even if they never use it yeah totally um how involved do you like to be in the mixing process of the album uh <laughs> <laughs> I I'm, mean, not, uh... <laughs> I'm not techie we we talked about this a little bit like both both on and on and off the mic uh I am not techie it's you could we could go into the whole like oh women in tech is weird um it's getting to be less weird and that actually is maybe a path that I could have gone down that I didn't um because it made more sense for me to just stick with my acoustics um like my acoustic instruments and my writing for real people. And that was easier for me to understand than the cold, hard, you know, deathly stare of Pro Tools at three in the morning. <laughs> um, I'm going to be totally honest. I hate it. Uh, I can't stand there and like, or sit there, really. Like, I can't listen to, to drum tones over and over. I can't really hear the difference. And it drives me up the wall. Um, I don't know how to eq properly like i understand the concepts of all this stuff but i could never do it myself um so, so i so basically you leave it up to to someone who who likes it more pretty i much. wait <laughs> until it gets creative again so it, it's always someone's job that is not me 
to go through and be like, okay, get a good drum tone, place everything in the right spot. Like, you know, make sure this is like clear. Um, and then I come in about halfway through um, and I'm there to be like, I would like to hear more vocal here. I would like to hear less of this here. This is too fuzzy. This is too sharp. This is too, is that in tune? Like, you know, for the most part, I want someone else to fix all the technical stuff. And then I want to just come in and be like, ah, I am a wash in sound. <laughs> <laughs> There's a discussion there to be had for sure about uh, language uh, between uh, mixing engineers and the creative person whose job it is kind of like, you know, the, the idea that you say something is too fuzzy and like, what does that mean? Like, how is that interpreted by the mixing engineer? I don't uh, remember. I think that's really interesting. You're going to appreciate this. I don't remember what we were talking about specifically, but it was on the last Big Band record. I was like, that needs to come out more and it needs to be shinier. And I'm sitting uh, next to Kevin yeah. who looks at my engineer and is like, okay, uh, up 2 TB, 2 dB and like a little bit here in the EQ. And I was just like, what? <laughs> <laughs> it was the only I'm moment I'm ear to ear here yeah, yeah like it was the only moment that that had happened where it was like so so technical but I whenever I think about those mixing sessions that's the moment I remember because it, yeah it's that's what I have another person there for is I I don't even when I rehearse my band it's not oh I need this to be more piano I need this to be like mezzo forte I need this to be whatever it's like can you be rounder <laughs> like can you be a warmer um, I want this person to be the through line. The new stuff that we're rehearsing has a lot of that where it's like, okay, your lead here is like some guy in the middle of the band. Everyone sound like that. Um, I think I was finally once like, let's be swingy. And like that it's been seven years and I've run a big band and swing is not a thing we do. <laughs> and everyone's just tilting their heads going, what? It's like, <laughs> like oh, really? I could do that? It's like, yes, for the first time. <laughs> Well, I was uh, I was going to like do a follow-up question of that like if other band members like to get in on the whole uh, because you know I, I, as you saw in my notes I, I wrote down the age old like not enough bass or could you raise the volume on the drums just a tad argument like Oh no that in is going, also Could you raise my instrument? <laughs> nope. That's also a benevolent dictatorship. As soon as we're off the floor, it's my job. Um and like whoever's producing. Uh which is not because I don't value their input. Um Sometimes I send stuff out in like the very final stages right before it goes to mastering. But more often it's kind of just like, you play, I pay you, and then I do the rest. <laughs> or like hire people to do the rest. Because it, right. if it's more than that, it's just too many cooks. Like if someone has feelings about what their sound should be on this recording, then like, cool. I, I generally want to hear it. But I don't want them in the booth being like, I can't hear myself. It's like, I don't care. <laughs> I hear you just fine. Okay. <laughs> and I love and value you, and I'm making this decision. <laughs> no, that's excellent. I mean, I'm like kind of being sarcastic, but it's the truth. It's just too many people. I have so many opinions in the same room. And like when you're mixing something, at least, at the very least, there's my opinion and the engineer's opinion. And there's usually at least one more person involved. Um, mm. And then it goes to mastering, and that's another person. That's already four people that have opinions. <laughs> like, the control freak in me is just like, that's too many. I, no. <laughs> so it's very much like everyone in their box doing the thing they're best at. And that's what's going to make the best product. Which ties into the other note that you had here about album art. It's like, um, I want the cheapest person who does the best work. And also the fastest. 
<laughs> All right. I guess that's yeah. <laughs> that answers that. I was gonna go into a whole like tangent on like how do you how do you let like do you let them get inspired by the like no nah, just. <laughs> Well, I, I also do. It's like, oh, I like your style. Um, I usually have a color scheme in mind. Um, like I said, I'm not very visual. Uh, so I send them colors and I send them like an essay about this is the feeling of this. And if there's elements that need to be included, like everything that's included on the Twilight Fall cover or almost everything is actually something that I told the artist to do. I was like, the statue that I want you to draw is a mix of this location in West Vancouver and this statue near both of our childhood homes um, or his like second, I guess. Um, so that's like, I give them parameters and I tell them what I want, but it's sort of like walking into a mixing session and being like, can you make this shinier? Like shiny, <laughs> like you mean, you mean trouble frequencies, right? Like you want me to EQ this? Yeah, I want shiny. <laughs> <laughs> all right yeah no that's that makes perfect sense i just <laughs> i really wanted to ask about it yeah <laughs> i think what i want to do now is basically kind of leave the floor to you like it's been such an honor to have you on and amazing like tons of fun to just listen to you talk and i really just want to i want to just ask you if if there's anything you feel like we've missed or anything you want to talk about that we didn't cover basically um so like i i guess the the big thing is that like everyone's journeys are going to be so different. And I really wish someone had told me this like, you know, 15 years ago, but as much as I can like tell my story and tell the things that I've like gone to do, you can't replicate it. Like everybody's journey is going to look a little bit different and everyone's process is going to look a, a little bit different. So at the end of the day, like take what you can from that and then go find the thing that works for you. Like, it's, it's really easy to get wrapped up into this whole idea of like, oh, I want to be just like you. And that means I have to do everything like you. And it's like, no, first of all, definitely not. Um, don't do everything like I did. It's a terrible idea. Uh, <laughs> and, and also, just like the thing I said before, um, your work as a creator and its value is not your worth as a person. And that's another thing that we get wrapped up in a lot as artists. And I think it's, uh, I think the thing that I would want to leave everybody with after this hour and change, <laughs> almost two, <laughs> um, which has been super fun. And thank you for having me. Uh, like your work is your work and your like individuality is something else. And that like thing that makes you as a person is not defined by your work so so do the work like hustle but also like go be a person <laughs> that's also go fun. be a person <laughs> yeah i love it that's uh that's an excellent way to to end this i think do you um well do you want to plug yourself a little bit yes like, where do we find you i love talking about myself <laughs> if you would like to hear me talk about myself more not nearly as nicely as i did today uh music <laughs> <laughs> that is two m's in the middle dot com uh i'm on facebook slash crym music it's the same handle on twitter and on instagram um, my band pages are both on Facebook only, facebook.com slash Chelsea in the Cityscape and facebook.com slash Socialist Night School. You can hashtag all that stuff and find us. I have a band camp. I'm on Apple Music, Spotify, all that, all that jazz. So I should be pretty easy to find on the internet and, uh, let's be friends. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. Thank you so, so much for wanting to be on this very first uh, I don't even know. Yeah, you started it's a amazing. Thing. 
<laughs> you were here when it started before we were famous. Uh, uh, no, but thank you so much for being on and talking about you and your music and everything. It's been such an honor and I wish you the very, very best in the future, Chelsea. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this first episode of The Hummingbirds. The current place where new episodes are primarily hosted is hummingbirds.podbean.com. You can find us on Twitter, at hummingbirdspod. We also have a Facebook page that you can find by searching for the username hummingbirdspod. See you next time. Thank you.